Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, which is in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one with a little black cover on it um, in one of the seats around you. Feel free to take that one if you do not have one of your own. Uh, Ruth is uh, is towards the beginning of the New Testament. I mean, Old, Old Testament. As you are as you're turning there, um, before I introduce the series that we're going to enter into on Ruth, uh, let me just say it, it is the day of Pentecost today, and often the the uh, the day when we discuss a great deal of of mission work and spreading to the ends of the earth and. We actually talk about that quite a lot here in our, in our church, which I'm, which I'm very thankful for. I think that the sermon series that we are about to, to uh, embark on here um, is, is right for this moment in our church. Uh, we've, in, through prayer and preparation and such as well, this is really the place where the Lord has led me uh, for, for us to engage in. Because this story, this story of, of Ruth is a story of redemption. It's a story of hope. It's a story of, of God working through very normal and very ordinary people. So at the heart of this, uh, or maybe I'll say it most overtly, this, this doesn't look like it's a story about mission, which is oftentimes the focus of Pentecost. But at the same time, it very much is, because this, this story we will see uh, advances the work of God's work of redemption in the world quite significantly, although we might not see it for a couple of weeks as we, uh, as we work through this book together. But I love this story. This is one of my favorite things to be able to preach on. I've preached on it before. I've taught on it even here. Over COVID, we had a little video series, and I taught on this uh, book then as well, because I think that it is so very pertinent to our culture today and to where we are today. And, uh, and I think that engaging in this story and understanding this story and reading this story actually can make us fall even more in love with reading the Word of God because of how um, how friendly this book is in so many ways. So I hope that even though it's a little weird to start a sermon series on Ruth on Pentecost, um, uh, I hope that what we engage in over the course of the next few weeks will be will be significant for you uh, and for us as a uh, as a church as well. So uh, let's uh, let's begin then in uh, in Ruth chapter. One, if you've never read Ruth before, it's only four chapters long, and so I encourage you to do that over the course of this month. Read it through a few times uh, to get the gist of it, and we'll unpack it together as well. But it's a, it's a narrative. In other words, it's very much a story, and so we're going to work with it from, from beginning to end and tell the story and explain why this story is important. And so we're going to meet a few of the most important people in this story right from the very start, okay? So it begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so the book right before this is the book of Judges. All right, and so this is the time. This was not a good time in Israel. Uh, that that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and and so there was this cycle that was happening throughout Israel at the time, where where what they would do is they, everything would be fine for a while, and they'd be worshiping God like they're supposed to, and then they would 
abandon him, start worshiping other gods, the, they, they would realize that this was not good when they started to get persecuted, bad things started to happen to them, other countries would invade and such, then they'd go, oh, I'm really sorry, we repent, we, God, uh, God, can we come back? Um, and God would raise up a judge for them who would then push back the enemy, free them again, and they'd go, oh God, we completely belong to you forever until they weren't anymore, and then they would follow other gods, and the whole cycle would continue. So this is stories of like Samson. If you know the story of Samson, he's one of the judges. Okay, so that's the historical context of where this is starting. And now the narrative starts that, that during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So there was, there was, uh, there was a lack of food. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So Bethlehem is probably a name that jumps off the page to you, because we talk about it a lot in December. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a time where the lineage of Jesus comes from, and through the city of, of David. We'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. Interesting thing, though, here. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what it means. So when we read something like this, that there was a famine in the land, there was, there was no bread in the house of bread. There was, no, there was no food where there is a promise of provision. It doesn't say it specifically here, but oftentimes we see in the Old Testament that, this, that famine in Israel came in one of these cycles that we were just talking about with the judges, a time of when, uh, when the nation was rebelling against God, a time of God's judgment on the people of Israel. So... What happens here is probably in a time of, of judgment, this guy, whose name is, we learn in verse 2, Elimelech, and the name of his wife is Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and, the, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So what happens is, there's a famine, and... And they decide, well, Elimelech decides to leave and go to the country of Moab. This, this was a bad decision. Let me tell you why this was a bad decision. Because although this is only about 50 or 60 miles from, uh, from Bethlehem, probably, it, they had to walk that, and so they, they walked it and they moved there. But Moab is not the greatest place for Israelites to go. Moab, you can find the origins of Moab back in Genesis chapter 19, you read it in verse 37. This is, I won't go into the story, but this is about the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, okay? And the people that came from that incestuous relationship are the Moabites. Not a great background um, of beginnings here for, for the Moabites. And then, over the years since then, they have been enemies of Israel. That, uh, that these two countries have fought quite a bit. God is very specific that he doesn't want his people going there. And, he, and he's very specific in places like in Deuteronomy where it says that we cannot take wives from Moabite. Israelite men should not take wives of Moabite women because it, uh, it could bring in their religion into Israel. Now let me tell you about their religion. All of this is important. Stick with me. They worship a god named Chemosh, and Chemosh was, uh, was a god, uh, it was a pagan god, a full, the worship of him was full of sexual immorality, and even, in major moments, human sacrifice, which 
which should be for us sort of the pinnacle of depravity, right? When if we think that to appease a God, we have to kill uh, one of our human beings, um, that this should be this should not be a good place for us to want to go and worship when we have a God who uh, who values the dignity and the sanctity of life, right? And so. So Moab and their religion is a tough place for, for Israelites to be. Again, when they were walking through the desert, before after Moses brought them out of Egypt, and before they went into the Promised Land, they walked around Moab, and Moab tried to, wanted to attack them. And this, connect some dots for you, if you know some stories in the Old Testament, this is where Balaam and his donkey come in, if you remember that story. If not, you're like, I don't even know what that is. Go read it. Go read. Go read your Bible. It's in there um, that uh, that that uh, God works through a talking donkey. I know it's a little like Shrek, um, and it's a, it's a good Bible moment. So this is this is what well, I'm setting all this up. So you see that Moab is not the place that we should run off to. So the decision for Elimelech to take his family. Hey, things are going bad in the Promised Land. So I'm going to go to this place of Moab. It's got to be better over there, is not just a bad family decision, it's a rejection of God himself, right? Of God saying there's particular ways that, that, that are good and righteous and holy that bring life and goodness, and there are things that bring about destruction and death, and so don't go do those things that bring destruction and death, and, uh, and Elimelech's going, well, I don't know, I'm kind of hungry over here, I think I'll go do, do those things. This is a, this is a majorly bad decision and friends, we have a tendency to do this sometimes. It's one of our first lessons in this. That Elimelech moved his family for material reasons. Right? That, that was his drive. I'm hungry. Um, and so for material reasons, to get the things that we need, we are now going to reject our faith and the God who has, uh, who has promised to provide for us. And we're going to go pursue things that are not of him in order to be able to gain material advantage, in order to chase money or security or fame or whatever else it is we want. We're going to reject God for those things instead of Him being the one who is provider. Now, I'm not saying there's not times for us to move uh, or to get another job somewhere else and we, and we move towards it. But no, those are they're, they're good and right things to do in that. The question here is a question of motivation. Why are we making the decisions that we're making? And clearly, they've said God can't fulfill the things that God has said he's going to be able to fulfill. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands. This is the same story as Genesis chapter 3. When God said, you can eat of all the fruit of the garden, Adam and Eve, except this one. And Satan came and said to them, what? why would he say that to you? What? unless maybe other ways are better than his ways, right? This is, a, this is a common lie throughout all of Scripture. Satan doesn't, hasn't come up with anything new for like millennia. Um, that this is the same lie that we're told, that ways other than God's ways are better, and that they're tempting, and that we'll pursue those things. And that's what Elimelech did with his family. Some of the irony in this, as I said, names are important in this. We talked about the name of, of Bethlehem. Elimelech means, my God is king. Like his mama named him, God is in control. So in his name tag, it said, hello, my name is God is king. 
right? And he still has forgotten this. And again, we are so willing and liable to do this on our own, oftentimes. So let's see how, how it works out for Elimelech, thinking that God's sovereignty isn't working. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Well, there you go. That's how that worked out. Um, uh, so he left Bethlehem because there wasn't enough food there, and so he went to Moab to try to live, and he died. Thus ends the sermon. Let's move on. No, uh, it, it, gets, it actually gets a little worse um, before it gets better. So Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Um, Lord have mercy if my wife was left only with my two sons. Uh, and uh, Love you, boys, wherever it is that you are. Um, and, uh, and so she was left with only her two sons. But this is, this is not that bad because in this culture, the sons were to take care of their mother if their father died, um, which is also still good in our culture as well. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so she still got her two sons. But look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives. Uh-oh. Do you remember we just said in Deuteronomy, it specifically said, don't, don't do that. This is, not a good, this is not a good idea. One was named Orpah, and the other was named Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. So, so they are they're in a land where they're not supposed to be. And this, is, again, comes back to the decisions of Elimelech here. Why do you think they took Moabite wives, even though they were told not to? Because he made a decision to bring his young children, who were not marrying age yet, to a place where they were going to have to find the people they were going to marry, and he removed them from, any, uh, from their own people, right? Like, he's not forward-thinking here. He's thinking only with his stomach, and his decisions then have affected his children as well. And they have taken Moabite wives, and then it says in verse 5, both Malon and Kilion died. Okay? Told you it was going to get a little worse. But here's the thing, too. Elimelech's name means my God is king. Naomi, her name means pleasant and fair. Okay? So that's good. But for some reason, they decided to name their kids Malon and Kilion, <laughs> which means, literally, stick. That's what Malon means. Stick. And his brother Kilion means wasting. Like, can you imagine this conversation when they had their baby book out and they were like, <laughs> what about Daniel? That means God is my judge. No, no, no. How about sick and wasting away? Yeah, those are great. That's really fantastic. Um, we're going to name them that. So it was sort of prophetic uh, because they got sick and they wasted away. And so now here is fair and pleasant Naomi in Moab without her sons, and with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Uh, this, was, this was very bad for her. Being left alone in this culture, there was no one to take care of her. She couldn't own land uh, as a woman in that culture. There was grief. There was no care. There was no legacy for her. Everything seemed like it has now completely fallen apart. And then in verse 6 it says this, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So after all, God does come to his people and, uh, and bless them and give them food. So what Elimelech did, hear this, friends, he was going through tough times, and so he blamed God, 
rejected God, left God to go do things on his own. Instead of saying, let's get to the heart of what's really going on here. What's the sin that's in our lives? What's the, what's the stuff that's breaking up our relationships? Why, why are we under judgment in this way uh, as, as the people of God? What, let's, let's have character, integrity, uh, boldness to engage in what's really going on. He ran. And then running, it only got worse. And so if we can learn one lesson from this. Let's not run. We're all going to go through difficult times. We're all going to go through struggles. We're all going to have pain. We're all going to not understand why certain things are happening. We're all going to go through discomfort that we have to persevere through. But let's seek out righteousness and holiness because that's the place where there's real life. And when we run, it only gets worse. Okay, so... Now, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth are going to head back to Israel again. And there's this really emotional scene in verse 7. They set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they were on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So what she's saying is she's releasing them. She's saying, I know there's no one to care for me, but you go back. You still get, you're still young. You can still get married. Uh, and so you need to, to go back, live with your mom. Uh, go, and then we'll pray that the Lord will provide you a husband. Again, I know all of these things don't translate necessarily in the same way in our understanding of marriage and today recognize their culture though okay and so so she says go back and you still have a hope for a new life and forget about me and then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept so here they are on the road right trying stuck between this place of of death and this place of now there's food over here but there's nothing left to her to go for her to go back to and she's saying to her daughters-in-law go from me And they pushed back. Verse 10, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So she's saying, like, if you stick with me, there's no hope. There's no hope in my life. I don't have any hope for another husband. I don't have any hope. I don't have any sons for anybody to care for me. I don't, there's no hope in being with me. And so you need to go. No, my daughter, she said, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let, me. let me just lift this up for a minute. She just blamed all this on God. Did you hear that? The hand of the Lord has come against me. If you rewind just a few minutes in the things that we've been explaining, actually a lot of this has to do with their own decisions. Right? I mean, they, God said, don't do that. Don't do this. It goes bad for you. Don't, don't, the, things happen if you go, don't do that. And they were like, Psh! and they went and did that. And then bad things happened. And they were like, God, why did you do this to me? If there's another lesson that we can learn from this, we do this same thing in our lives as well. Right? That we often want to turn and go, well, I'm, I'm so angry. Things haven't turned out the way that I wanted them to be able to. If, if there is a God, I don't even want to know him. I'm just angry. 
Because the things are the way that they are in my life. And so, God, why have you done these things to me? Sometimes those things are a result of the fact that we live in a sinful world. Sometimes those things are a result of our own sin as well. Sometimes we make decisions that get us into those places. It's not always God's fault. But in fact, God is often and always the solution to these things. We're going to see this in Naomi in just a minute, too, as well. Okay? So, then they lifted up their voices, it says in verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. There's all these tears. And, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah was like, no, 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 I'm going with you. And then Naomi said again, no, you can go. And Orpah went, okay, bye. Right? And so she, so she left. Orpah's name means nape of the neck. Is what, it, is what Orpah means. And so some of the commentators that I was reading on this talk about how that's sort of prophetic, just like wasting away and dying, um, that, because she turned her back on Naomi. And so she went back to her people. But here's Ruth. The book is named Ruth, so she's an important figure in this book, okay? And what she does here sets a tone for a lot of what is about to happen. She clings to her mother-in-law, and, and what happens here is what many people think is a, a conversion moment. Remember, she's a Moabite. She is a follower of Chemosh. Ruth is an Israelite and a follower of God, our God. And Ruth says, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, Naomi says in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What, it, what happens here in Ruth's words, we see her reject the God of, of Moab and say, your God is my God and I want to be a part of your people. If we read any of the Old Testament, this is an important phrase in the Old Testament where God actually made a covenant with his people and the way he defined that covenant is to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here, Ruth is saying to Naomi, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. This is a conversion moment where she begins to follow the God of the Bible. And what happens with that conversion for her, that change from darkness to light, that change from Chemosh to God, is that we start to see that she's immediately brought into a community, a people. And this is true when we come to be Christians now, too. That a, that a conversion means not only saying, okay, I believe in Jesus, but that I am a part of Jesus' people. I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the people that God is using blessing and saving. That when we, when we come to be Christians, we don't just have a different individual devotional spirituality. We have a new family. And this is what happens with Ruth here as well. And she clings to Naomi. And even when Naomi is not being the best Israelite right now as well, her faith is, is wobbly, we're about to see, um, from, from Naomi. But Ruth, you can see her devotion, her character, her love, her willingness to say, I will not let 
my mother-in-law be, uh, be penniless and afraid and with no one to care for her. I'm devoted to her, even if that means cost to myself. Ruth is, is, quite, is quite the woman we're about to see, an amazing woman. Okay, so here's what happens. Naomi is not immediately better. She doesn't just cheer up. Oh, well, that's great. Now everything's happy. It takes a little while. So verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Okay, so what's happened? The whole town was stirred. In other words, Naomi coming home was a big deal. And we're going to see that she's received with joy in this as well. Now this question, is this Naomi? You can interpret this multiple ways. One commentator that I was reading about this said that her life in Moab had been so difficult that when she came back, that she was, she was not the pleasant, fair person who had left, but she has a different demeanor, even a different look about her. And they say, is this Naomi coming? She's changed so much. Others are saying in surprise, say that what they mean by this is they're in surprise. Is Naomi really back? I think it probably could be a little bit of both. And they're welcoming her back from her place of, of brokenness, from her place of sadness. She's come back to her people, and the people are welcoming her back home. I'm going to draw a parallel here again to the church. Maybe, maybe this is a place where you are as well. Maybe you've been through some really difficult, dark things. Maybe you've been through some significant pain. Maybe you've walked away from the church or have never been in the church to begin with. Um, but the people of God welcome you. Welcome home. Welcome back to the place of family. Welcome to the people of God. And so, here's what Naomi says. She's not the most fair and pleasant person to be around right now. Here's her response. She comes back. They're like, hey, Naomi's back. And here's what she says to them. Verse 20. Do not call me Naomi, which means fair and pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I don't know if you've been through difficult things in your life. I'm sure you have. We all have. Uh, was it bad enough for you to change your name? Um, because you just felt to call me something. Hello, my name is Bitter. And they're like, okay, if that's what you want to be known for why, for a while, we'll call you bitter. That's okay. Um, but she says, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now listen again to what she says, because we have, um, we have a tendency to do this in our lives as well. She engages in a little bit of revisionist history here. Here's what she says. The, the Lord, uh, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Is that the story that you remember? Because I think specifically they left because their stomachs were empty. Right? The, she, she left with her husband, and that was it. Um, and uh, it doesn't seem like a very wise husband either who did this work for her. She's gone through very, very difficult times. But she didn't leave full, and then the Lord reduced her. And again, friends, we sometimes have a tendency to do this when we go, this is all God's fault. I, I had a wonderful life, and then he did this to me. Not always the case, but our God is always the God who redeems. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? But here's the thing. When you read underneath Naomi, 
She's bitter. She's angry. She's depressed. She renames herself bitter. She has a little bit of revisionist history in her. But I love her for her realness in this. She doesn't come back going, everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm just fine. I'm fine. She didn't come back saying, well, I need to get my stuff together before I come back to my people. She went back to her people in hopes that there would be redemption there. And never once does she say, all of these terrible things have happened to me, and so I don't, I don't even know if there is a God, and if there is a God, I don't want to know Him. She never doubts His existence. She's struggling in her relationship with Him. She's struggling with whether He's good or not. But she never doubts whether He's there. And she's willing to, and does, engage in that over time. And I encourage us to do the same. When we go through the difficult, dark times of our lives, let's remember these words as well, that we don't have to immediately turn and go, well, where's God in this? I don't even know if God exists now. But to say, I'm confident of that. Now let's figure out how God is a part of this. And that might take some time and some effort. And it definitely takes the community. So this is how this chapter ends. She's come back. She is she and Ruth, and Ruth is looking around to a new people. How is she going to be received? How are the people of God going to care for her as well? And it says this in verse 22. And we're going to leave in a little suspense this week. But luckily, we'll be back next week. Same time uh, to be able to hear what happens next. Verse 22 says this. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And then there's this wonderful little line. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's some foreshadowing here. There's something happening. God has brought forth fruit in the fields, and the people are just now starting to bring it in. Where Naomi has just said, there is no hope in my life. There is no hope for you. Go away from me because I'm bitter and the Lord has done has brought calamity upon me. But the scripture here tells us, but we're at the beginning of the barley harvest. Good things are being brought in. God is at work. And not just in the fields with plants, but in the lives of people. And we're going to sit there this week in that place of hope and anticipation. We're going to start to see what happens next week as we go into Ruth chapter 2 to see how God deals with Naomi and with Ruth and how the people of God interact with them. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for the chronicle of this story, and we thank you that, it is, uh, that it, is not, it is not a fictional story, but that this is reality and, and real life. And that this is a story uh, of normal people and how they interact with you and how you work through their lives and the difficult parts of their lives. We thank you for the witness of Ruth, for the witness of Naomi in this. And Lord, I pray for all those who are in this room who are suffering now, who are struggling with the same things that Naomi is struggling as well, an anger, a bitterness, a hurt from the decisions of others, and from the things that have happened in her life that are outside of her control. And, Lord, there are many in this room who sit in that same place. Lord, and I pray that you would grant them perseverance, that you would give them a sense of hope that this 
that this place that they are sitting in today or that they are watching online, that this place is the people of God who want to receive them. And that they have returned to this place as God is doing great things. That this is the beginning of the barley harvest. A time of redemption. A time for blessing. And we pray, Lord, for the hopeless who are hearing these words this morning, that you would give them hope that only comes with you. And we pray, Lord, over the next few weeks that your word will jump off the page to us. Change our hearts and our minds as we hear about how you, how you deal so wonderfully with Naomi and with Ruth. And we do pray these things in your name. Amen.